Acclaimed cybersecurity power player Chloe Misdagi is making big moves in her new role as Cyberay's head of impact. In this episode of the Cyberay podcast, she discusses common sense approaches to minimizing bias and cultivating inclusivity in the security industry. How can organizations mitigate not only dynamic cyber risks, but also the revolving door of employee turnover? Listen to Chloe's advice on developing a human-centered perspective in security management and workplace culture. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on the Cyberry Podcast again today. As you all know, for better or for worse, I'm Will Carlson, the Senior Director of Content here at Cyberry, and I have a really unique uh, privilege today to be joined by a repeat guest on the Cyberry Podcast, Chloe Misdagi. Chloe, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for giving, giving of your time and having a chat with me today about you know some of the struggles, some of the chief struggles on security teams today. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm I'm so happy to be here. I mean, the last time I was here, I was not an employee of Cyberry. And then by being on that podcast, it's like, I should look at Cyberry. And here I am. <laughs> now at Cyberry. It was a little bit of a journey to get here, I know. Um, but I, I'm so glad that you stuck it out and you finally made it. We're super excited to have you on the team. And I know myself and the content team are really excited to have you as partners uh, with us and everything that Cyberry is out to do in, in the near term. So thanks so much. Yeah, happy to. Um, so d- diving right in, um, you know, what do you see from your experience in your seat as some of the primary struggles that security teams are faced with today? Right. So I would say that there are a few things, but I would say the first thing is that we don't really have a shortage of personnel in this field. A lot of people have this belief that we don't have people to fill the seats. But I don't really think that's the situation. I think we have a lot of gatekeeping in our industry. Um, For example, um, in the past, I decided to do a test of this on my own. Um, I decided to send a bunch of resumes in my first year um, as Corey Smith and then also as Chloe Masagi. And Chloe Masagi didn't get any callbacks, but Corey Smith got every callback. Same resume and everything too. So Gatekeeping very much exists in our field. It takes way too long to get a seat at, you know, on a team. Um, and it's really, it's a situation that we need to really figure out because, you know, we have all these wonderful people that are going on Cyberry that want to enter our field or in the field and they want to get that job. But, you know, when you see all these job postings, they're like, oh, you need to have three to five years of experience for an entry level role. I mean, that in itself, I don't know what those expectations are. And when they're like, well, we haven't been able to fill these seats, it's been three to six months. So we always go to this, there must be a shortage of personnel. It's not, it's really a gatekeeping situation. So we say skills gap is such, is a situation that we have, not a person of how many people we can fit. It's really a skills gap. And I think that skills gap is also leading to people getting a little bit burned out. Um, but also it's caused that revolving door because we're not investing in our people. And when we're not investing in our people, people are going to leave. How do you think, um, h- how can you respond? How should employers respond? I think, you know, gatekeeping is a huge problem across many industries, particularly uh, the cybersecurity space for a number of maybe somewhat unique reasons um, to your point of just changing the gender of a resume, having a material impact on the amount of callbacks you got, which, you know, we would like to think today, I think that was absolutely astounding and that's not the case. But even, I think there's a number of, of 
uh, things that we could cite in the literature at large from from HR space and even in your anecdotal research that that's the case. Um, what do you think? What do you think causes that? Do you have any ideas as to why that's the case? And how, how do you, as you know, an individual in the career space, either a hiring manager or somebody in a seat, or what can we do to impact that? How do we how do we do our part to help change that? Yeah, I would first say that we have a bias problem. So because of, and I'm just going to use a random name here, okay? So the thing is that we're so used to seeing a particular persona um, have those seeds on a secure team, which is unfortunately, it's always a cisgendered uh, man um, who is white. And so because we have that situation, uh, we're always going to look for someone who's going to be like that person because we're filling that seat that that person used to have. Um, so that's the thing is like, we're already using human biases to bring on the person who isn't there to fill that seat. So we always think of, okay, if we're going to draft out this, you know, this job description, we want to make sure it matches almost to the T of the previous person plus a little bit of extra. So you're basically writing out the job description of someone who already had that seat with that demographic. Um, and so what ends up happening is that when you apply for those roles, if you don't meet that demographic, um, you're not going to get interviewed or you may be interviewed, but you're not going to have any chance. I think there's like the statistic that if there is a person of color and a woman who has applied for a job and has gone all the way through the process, if there's only one of each one of them, chances are they will have a zero chance of getting hired. So, I mean, like if we just think about that in itself, that's letting us know we have a problem. Um, but I think like the first step is to acknowledge we have these biases. We also don't want to hire someone that we're like, oh, this is a person I want to go get a drink with. No, we're hiring them to do a job. Not necessarily this is a person I want to get to know on a deeper personal level. That's what you do after work. You're looking for the person who could do the job and is willing to roll up their sleeves. Um, so the first thing to do is when you get resumes, like get someone to cover up the name first things first. Next thing, when you're writing your job description, make sure that it's to the T of what you need, but also note that you have the expectation as someone who's hiring someone to also train them. Almost all the major companies, they will train people for the first three months on everything that they need to know. So that in itself is important. I know we always want to hire someone who we could just throw in a seat and be like, do security. That's not how it's going to work. Um, so you want to make sure you make time to invest in the person you bring on board. So if you're looking for an entry-level role, make sure to, in your description to just note, years of experience should not be there. That's a barrier right there. If you're looking for an entry-level person, you're going to have to expect you're going to get an entry-level person who's going to need some skills. And to be honest, every single person who comes on board is going to need to learn some new skills. Yeah, I know from my experience in IT and cybersecurity, right? So you can have all the skills in the world, but coming into a brand new environment, fresh from scratch, not knowing how things are put together, why they're put together, how the subnets are structured, what security tools they have in the stack, what 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 is the data that they care about? Who are the adversaries that they care about? There's so many pieces of contextual information that you have to take in. So even if you have years and years of experience, you're still going to have to train on those things, very much to your point, right? There's just... I don't feel like there's any way to avoid that. And I understand on one hand, the desire to, you know, 
have as much baseline knowledge as we can so we can spring forward as fast as possible. But I do think we have to be really realistic about the baseline knowledge required for an entry-level position has to be different than the baseline knowledge required for a senior-level position. And the spring forward point for that entry-level position is going to be very different than that of a person that's been in the field for 10 years. It's just, there's no way to avoid the initial onboarding and training. It's part and parcel for the industry because it's so complex and complicated. It's, it really boggles my mind that that we feel like by getting more senior people that there's a way to short circuit that because I've never found that that is a reality. You said something too that it made me think that gatekeeping and our biases blocking diversity in this field is so antithetical to what I believe the solutions that we need to really solve a number of our key cybersecurity problems because a diversity of opinions, a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of experiences is so key to solving some of these problems and coming up with new ideas and new approaches to candidly, in my opinion, to combat an adversary that is probably more diverse than a lot of cybersecurity leadership teams in organizations across the world. Yeah. And I mean, this is the reason why bug bounty has taken off in vulnerability disclosure programs is because they're literally asking for people around the world to help find bugs that their team may miss because that's how it works. It's like you need a diverse set of eyes to be able to find things that your team is not going to have be able to find. And so, yeah, diversity matters. If we want to have better security, we need to have more diverse folks. And that's not just in our race and gender, that's also economically. You know, there's, we have so many people that want to enter our field that, you know, they cannot afford to go through training. You know, some of these uh, training places, they cost like $10,000 boot camps, all these things, but it doesn't promise you a job at the end. And people have to take out loans, second mortgages. And I mean, like, if you just think about that, like, how are we, we keep talking about this as a problem and we keep talking about we don't have enough people, but what are we doing to change that and making it more affordable, right? And that's one of the reasons that I came to work at Cyberry was because it is a lot more affordable and accessible for people. And that's so important because we need people to join and everyone should be able to come and, and do what they want to do in their life, in their career. And we need to support them at the end of the day because we need them. I agree completely. I think it's really interesting what you said about bug bounties and diversity as an example, right? And that I think the more we can do and the more ways we can find to democratize what it is that we do and spread it out to a much broader audience it's certainly not going to hurt uh, the amount of available people in positions and the, the picture of diversity across our industry. How important do you think that it is as an industry that we continue to do things to democratize and to change the diversity of you know, what we look like as an industry? I think that's the thing is like, if you're only, for example, if you're only going to market a certain industry to a certain population, but then you have a shortage problem at the same time of people filling a seat, Something's not working. I mean, we could keep trying here, but nothing's working here. So maybe we need to address that fact first, which is like, how do we get more people? So, you know, the, the whole situation has been like, well, let's start getting women to come into cybersecurity then. Let's start going to their colleges. Let's start going to their high schools. And that's a great way entrance because when I think back of it, back in the day, I had absolutely no idea that this industry was something that I could be in. So, I mean, like, that's a great way is just getting out there. But at the same time, when we bring them in, let's make sure they're supported. 
The thing is that we have a revolving door problem when it comes to, you know, marginalized people. They come into our industry and then we don't give them the resources that they need. And plus they're battling microaggressions consistently, like every single waking moment at their work. And so like, if you think about that, why would they stay? If they're getting burned out, they're getting microaggressions happening. Like, why would they stay in our industry? So if there's people that don't look like them, would they want to stay? Do they feel like they belong? And that's that's the whole thing. So when we talk about like DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, what we really mean is belonging, making sure that this person, when they go into the room, there's other people like them in the room so they don't feel alone. And that's the thing. If we make sure that people don't feel alone, then they will stay. If we invest in them, they will stay. But if we don't do either of them and they just keep complaining about the situation, we're never going to get anywhere. We're just going to have the same problem over and over and over again. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? So for 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 human beings as as people and, and the, the creatures that we are to really thrive and do well and continue to grow, I think a really important fundamental need that we have is one that we don't often talk about, I don't think, uh, and that's safety and security for ourselves as as people, right? To your point about microaggression, that, that doesn't create a safe work environment. That doesn't create an environment where I get to leverage my diversity and my difference in opinion to help solve a problem in a new way that, that drives me to obedience and conformance. And that's, you end up doing the same things, the same ways, solving the same problems and expecting different results. And it just doesn't work that way. So I think to your point of the revolving door, you know, making people feel welcome and making their differences be supported and applauded and 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 lifted up as opposed to forcing them to do and approach the same problems in the same way that everybody else is really, really important. Um, I wonder what other ways, though, in your experience, uh, can organizations successfully, and cybersecurity organizations in particular, um, help with that revolving door? How can they combat that? What, what's some of the medicine that we need to take as an industry to make a difference there? I would say it, when we look at you know, the research out there, the first thing that comes to mind is leadership and investment. So the, um, in this research project that I did with Ryan Louie, he's a psychologist, uh, we have a talk at RSA conference very soon about this. We dived into why are people getting burnout so fast? And we keep hearing people are burned out on secure teams. And him and I, we've been talking about it even before the pandemic, how this is a mm-hmm. huge issue. But the thing is, at the end of the day, we always thought it's more work if we were overloading people with work, then they're going to get burned out. That's not the case. The real reasons of burnout is starts with leadership issues. The second one is at the end of the day, has to do with the the feeling of not feeling the company cares about them. Hmm. So if a company isn't doing the best that they can to support the individual, that's going to be a problem. So a lot of companies are like, everyone has to come into the office from now on. You were remote for the last two years, but now you have to come in. It is a requirement that you must be here every single day. Um, yeah, people are going to leave because they're not being hurt. They don't want to. They want a hybrid model or they want remote. And the thing is that when we're making decisions at the top, we have to also check in with everyone else to make sure that they're on board with it. So having that you know, transparency and that open line of communication is so critically important. 
But it first starts with your manager, making sure your manager is wanting to see you thrive and wants to mentor you. And, you know, it's hands off. I think whenever we have managers that micromanage us, that ends up becoming a situation where people get burned out or sometimes even developing PTSD. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about making sure you have the right people and leadership, but also making sure you have diverse folks at the top because it does cause a trickle down effect. So if we want DEI, we need to make sure that that's also recognized in our leadership. Yeah, no, that that's really great. I I, I wonder, um, you know, obviously you're here, uh, you've joined the team again, which is, is so phenomenal. Um, how, how does training figure into that? Does it does it play a part in that? Is it play a part in a specific stage uh, of that whole process from getting people into the field, finding the right seats, uh, or does it is it across the entire continuum if we do it right? I have found that the best companies to go work for are the ones that are like. You want to learn that skill? Great. We're going to play, we're going to, you know, we'll pay for that. You want to go to college while you're doing this? We'll help you on that front. If you want to have a certain role in your life, we'll help you get there. Remember, like whatever seat that you're coming in at the company or in that seat, that's not your permanent seat for many years. It's supposed to be, you know, you know, like kind of like going upstairs, right? You're supposed to go up and, and, and get to where you want to go. And not everyone should be in a management role. And that's okay. Like not everyone wants, should, and want to, you know, manage people. It is up to that individual and what they want to do. But the thing is, is that by making sure that they have the skills of making sure that they feel like you want to invest in their future, that is so important. So for example, you know, coming on Cyber, I get full access to the platform. <laughs> I can learn all the skills I want to. So I actually have right now on my, my list of things to do is I want to go through the CISO training because I want to know. I've, I've studied CISOs and I've studied like um, how the behavior has been and how they can really make an impact in their company and on their security team. Now I want to know what it's like to actually be in their shoes and the everyday things that they need to do. And we have that career pathway of, you know, being able to figure out and know what it's like to be a CISO and what would be the job duties assigned to that role. So I have the ability to do that in my role because I have access to the platform. So I can do whatever I want and learn all these great roles so I can know what it's like to be one of those individuals on that team, or at least learn the basic skills. So when I communicate with them, they feel like they're being supported and there's some empathy. That's the only way we're going to learn, right? Is from learning from each other and learning how other people and how they work and their skills. Yeah, I, you mentioned leadership earlier and then talking about how organizations can kind of come alongside uh, staff as individuals to support them. And what, you know, what kind of comes through there for me is the importance and the criticality of alignment. Making sure that leadership is aligned with your goals, making sure that you as an individual are aligned with the organization's goals of where you're at. And I, I think, I wonder, you know, taking maybe a little bit of a turn and a tangent here, but if if I'm an individual that's trying to get into this field, how can I make sure that 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 alignment is there early in the process? Is there anything that I can do to make sure that I'm choosing an employer that's where I'm really going to thrive? Is it the questions that I ask? What are the cues that I can that I can take away? How do I need to be thoughtful about who I am as a person to figure out what is aligned with me? And, and you know, do you, do you find that 
I know I find in, in, in mentoring some in the community that a lot of people, when you ask them, what do they want to get out of a job? What, what's important to you in the place that you work? I get a lot of blank stares. And, and you know, the first reaction is, and, and I understand it, um, but is, well, I just need a paycheck. Well, okay, that is very important and a fundamental human need, right, is to make sure you have a roof over your head and clothes on your back and food on the table. I, I get all of that, but I, I think we have to push for more than that. And that requires a little bit of introspection about what it is that we want, who we are as, as individuals, and making sure that we're aligning with an organization. So I just wonder how you've seen that show up, if you have any yeah. tips or techniques that people can do to, you know, having been in a position as a hiring manager a number of times over my career, it's as important to me that that individual is aligned with where I'm going, where the company is going. That's a reciprocal thing. It's a relationship and it's got to be mutual. But I don't, I find that a lot of people don't view it that way. So I wonder what advice you have for people to make sure that they're aligned with the company and the company is aligned with them and giving themselves permission to say no. Yeah, I would say that the first thing to know is that usually if one's like, I, it's just a paycheck. Um, we have to wonder or look inside ourselves. Why do we see it that way? Um, and I think it's when we're not feeling like our job is fulfilling a purpose in our life. <laughs> so when we're purpose driven, we're like, we don't see it as just a paycheck. We're seeing it as like rolling up our sleeves and we're doing something that excites us. Yeah. You will still press that snooze button. Okay. Let's be real with each <laughs> other. I mean, it's, it's five days a week. Um, but the reality is when we're purpose-driven, we're excited. We are like, I am driven. It means that you're going to feel all the emotions. That means you're going to be angry at times. You're going to be so happy at times. You're going to be curious all the time. Um, but when we see it as just a paycheck, that means we've already checked out. That means that we have apathy at where we work. And that might mean that you feel like you've lost a part of yourself maybe in the process. And so I think one of the things is to when we start feeling that way and we were excited before, this is usually a sign of burnout. I hate to say it, but it is true. Usually what happens is that when we come in the first six months, if you're in a non-managerial role, you're going to be very excited and have all the energy in the world. And it's like, boom, apathy at the end in six months. And if you have apathy within six months, you're most likely dealing with burnout. If you're in leadership positions it's or management roles, I would say that that usually is one to two year, by the way. So overall, if you don't feel empowered at your job, then it might be a good place to start looking. Now, when you're starting to look, when you're interviewing folks, mm -hmm. I say beforehand, start reaching out to some of those people that work there and on that team on LinkedIn. Be like, hey, can I get like 10 minutes of your time? I really want to know what the company culture is like and what mm -hmm. the team's like, because I want to make sure wherever my next move is, it's not another paycheck. It's going to be a place where I can grow and I can see my team grow as well. That's the first thing you should do. It's just ask people. I know it's uncomfortable to ask strangers for, you know, suggestions or feedback or anything like that, but it's so important because that's how we learn. It's um, not nearly as uncomfortable as getting into a job that you absolutely hate yeah. to go to in the morning. I mean, like, all right. I mean, say you have like two job offers on the table and you're just like looking at both of them like, well, I don't know which one to go. This one pays more, but I think I'll be unhappy. Or this one, I might not get paid as much, but I think I'll I'll be happier. I'll have a better like work-life balance. What matters more at the end of the day for that person? Is it the pay necessarily or is it the work-life balance? And I know many will be like, oh, it's the pay, Chloe. It's literally the pay. But at the end of the day, I think 
when we look at it, when we're making the best career decisions or any decisions in our past, it's not usually always about the money per se. It's about how do we feel at the end of the day? If I feel good in my work and I feel appreciated and people invest in me and like, you know, my, my, you know, manager is like always mentoring me and wants to see me go beyond them. Oh my God. Like that is, that's going to make my life so much better on so many levels. But granted, the pay should always be the amount that one should be getting paid. Just want to put it out there. No one should take a job for like minimum wage on a security team because they have a good <laughs> feeling. Like, no, you should be getting paid the market value for what you do. Um, but it is really important to also, you know, really, you know, time matters more than money. Just remember, and we've always been told money matters more than time. But at the end of the day, you cannot give back those hours. No, I think it was Warren Buffett who somewhat famously or maybe infamously said that uh, the one thing that as human beings that we all have the same amount of that we can't get any more or less of is is time, right? You yeah. can always, you can settle for less money and be just as happy as if you had more, but we all have exactly the same amount yeah. of time. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting too in that people when they don't have alignment and they don't feel supported and it creates this burnout and this churn, um, you, you know, I, what of that do you think is unique to kind of the core mandate of a cybersecurity team? It does seem like at least um, it's a, a really present problem for um, cybersecurity for sure, but maybe even technical roles. So I, I know I'm, I'm, I follow the sysadmin subreddit on Reddit and it's a regular, it's a repeat thing, right? On, on uh, almost a daily, but definitely a weekly cadence of people saying, I'm leaving, I'm done. Been doing this for 30 years. I finally had it. And it's the adage of, you know, people don't leave, com people don't leave good companies. They leave bad managers. And that's yeah. oftentimes the talk track there. But is there something unique in the demands or the type of person that gets into cybersecurity? Or is there a reason or is it just anecdotal that we feel like these problems are particularly pointed in cybersecurity? Yeah, I would say that it's very rare to find industries that run 24-7. I mean, yeah, granted retail, you could say it's 24-7 now, but cybersecurity never takes a break. What that means is that even if it's after hours, if I get a call at two in the morning and we are dealing with a breach situation, I need to be awake and I need to be like, you know, completely awake and alert and ready to go. Um, and I also like, if it's a holidays, you know, like even if I'm on vacation, I have to know there's going to be a moment that I could possibly have to go online or go back to the office a lot sooner. So when you're on security teams, you know that the world really, it feels like the weight of the world's on your shoulders because that company's weight is on your shoulders. The customers, your employees, everyone's on your shoulders. If anything goes down, it's on you. And it, the unfortunate bit is that that CISO is also feeling it a lot too. We see a lot of CISOs that are, you know, become, they became alcoholics um, because it's so overwhelming, stressful. They're also the first ones on the chopping block if a breach were to occur. So, I mean, like, I think the average length for a CISO for a job is like one year or something like that. It's like really, really small amount. Low. And it, when people are like, you know, you should become a CISO or one day you should be a CISO. You know, you have to think that through. Like you'll be on a chopping block. You are literally the chopping block. Now, let's talk about a CISO. CISO has a really hard time and this is why they have a hard time. 
They're always asking for funds, but the company usually will not give that to them. The reason for that is like, well, we don't see a return of investment. Well, the return of investment is not getting breached. Like, right. That is, that is literally your ROI. But the reality is that they're going to give more funds to sales and marketing because they see an ROI attached to it. So whenever, you know, your security person is like, I need to get more, I need to invest more money on my security. We need to get this new tool. Um, they'll be like, why? And then having to explain that to people that have apathy towards security because most of us are insecure because we don't have apathy towards it. And so that's one. The other thing is the CISO also is aware that most of the people in the company is not doing good security practices. They're probably making the, the worst passwords in the world and like using the same one over and over. And so they always are going to be thinking, uh, you know, this is just going to happen. It's going to happen. I just don't know when. And at the same time, the CISO is overwhelmed because they are working more hours than your typical executive too. So because anyone who's in security, it's expected for them to work longer hours. So the CISO is overwhelmed. And when it comes to planning anything like an incident response plan or anything like that, it is up in the air because no one has time for that. Everyone on the team is has like three jobs in one person. What that means is that there's too many seats that are left unfilled. So what ends up happening, more people are taking on other people's work. So now they're doing multiple jobs um, on a security team. So each person is doing so much more work than they're used to. They're also supposed to work at all hours, if you think about it, even though it's supposedly a nine to five job. It is not a nine to five job. It's all hours. Um, because attackers come at all hours, especially the holidays for some reason. Can't imagine um, what that would be. Yeah, I wonder why. Why Christmas? Why <laughs> New Year's? I'm curious. Um, so the secure team is is overwhelmed, not just that, but there's a lot of stuff that you know developers can do that could help, you know, mitigate the situation of the weight that the secure team is carrying. And unfortunately, that's not happening yet. We're still trying to get to that DevSecOps movement, and I really look forward to that. Um, but security teams are overwhelmed. They're overworked. And then, you know, you have people that are managers that maybe aren't the greatest managers. They're more like micromanaging. We have a lot of that because they never went through training. We always just assume someone who's the best performer should be someone who manages people. And yeah, that's really, not the case here. It's a really interesting industry trend, right? I think it's pre present across a number of technical industries in particular, and in that if you want to continue to progress your career, maybe less so in development, I, I think they're they're flying in the face of that a little bit. But for a lot of technical roles, if you want to move up the ladder, the assumption is that you have to move into management. You 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 don't have a choice if you want to continue to progress in your career. You, you have to become a people manager. And in my experience, that leads to a good number of people that are managing others that some, you know, I've heard, I heard somebody make the quip that uh, technical people or cybersecurity people are, are fine as long as you don't go in the server room and you slide some pizza under the door occasionally, right? So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> joking aside, um, people management's not for everybody. Um, yeah. So just to assume that if you want to continue to progress your career, you've got to move into a people management role. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to support you in that. You should just inherently know how to manage people because you're a person. Yeah. 
is absolutely astounding. And we wonder why that's such a struggle and why there's a disconnect between people that are managing and those that are being managed by those people. It's a really uh, yet another unfortunate reality of kind of the way the, the, the ladders and the careers have been built around some of this. Um, I, I, you, and when you were talking about CISOs in particular, I, I had a really interesting conversation recently about um, somebody who's built a program uh, and some content specifically for boards of directors. And, um, you know, not everybody may be following, but there are some proposed SEC rule changes that are really um, the, the same way that Sarbanes-Oxley did for uh, financial um, skill sets on boards of directors. They're doing similar, they have similar proposed rule changes for cybersecurity as well. Um, and, you know, the conversation quickly turned to, you know, and, until cybersecurity as a concept is, is as baked into business leadership curriculum and the fundamental experience of those CISOs really are up against a, a pretty difficult task, right? So they're having to advocate for what their function is to a group that don't fundamentally understand in a lot of ways the the benefit that cybersecurity offers and just views it as insurance. And, you know, I don't know about you. I I'm guilty. I personally prefer to spend as little on insurance to give me just the amount of coverage that I need every single time. So when cybersecurity is viewed that way, that's the mentality, right? How, how little can I spend on you to get what I think that it is I need without a full understanding of the picture in which we really live and what's what's on the line? So I agree. CISOs have a very, very hard job in the business climate today. And I think you know, we, we have some other really fun um, SMEs joining the team relatively soon. Someone you know, um, a longtime connection of Cyberary, Jeff Mann, coming on board, who's phenomenal at connecting those dots for people that are, um, you know, related to cybersecurity but tangential. And that's just one of, I think, many of the ways that Cyberary is trying to have the impact that we can on the space and the perception of the space and to make a difference both on um you know, the skills that people have in the space and people's accessibility to the platform and our broader understanding as an industry and, and as a business community around what it is that cybersecurity is about and why it's beneficial. I think yeah. the, the work of cybersecurity professionals is hard enough, let alone uh, against some of those odds. I know another thing that you said that really resonated with me, um, I'll, I'll harken back to my transition out of IT and cybersecurity into Cyberary when I joined here full time having been a long time contractor and, and really involved and engaged every way I could be with Cyberary because I very much aligned with what the company was out to work to do. Um, it was probably the second weekend I looked up and I, I told, I told my family that, did you know what I just realized? I haven't had my phone on me all weekend long. And I know in talking with our CEO, with Kevin, very much the same experience. Like he had holidays when he, oh, where's my phone? And you just panicked. The phone was going to ring and something was going to interrupt that holiday. And I've been told in my career, like, well, we're downsizing the team. What am I going to do when I'm on vacation? And, and candidly from leadership being told, yeah. well, you're going to pick up the phone and take care of the problem. That's what yep. you're going to do. Yep. I, I remember um, one of the security companies I worked for, I was traveling with my father in Morocco and we were in like this this area that was pretty rural. And I got a phone call saying, Hey, I need you to log in right now. I'm like, what? It's like seven in the morning and I'm in the middle of nowhere in Morocco. That's not happening. And I remember how much I got in trouble for that afterwards. But I mean, like it's, it's one of those things that, you know, a lot of security folks, they want to take vacations. They want to take time off, but 
we also know like when we come back, it's going to be a dumpster fire or it's going to be a situation where if I take time off, then Jerry and, you know, and Rita has to take on my work and they're already slammed as it is. So is that okay? And then also like, if I'm going to take time off, I'm going to get that phone call. Um, and that's, and it shouldn't be like that. It really shouldn't at the end of the day. No. And I know every cybersecurity person that I can think of, um, they want to be able to take time off and they want to be able to do that in a way that doesn't put the organization at risk. So I don't think anybody is saying that, sorry, I'm not taking this call right now. I don't care what that means. I think what we're asking for and what others ask for is figure out a way for that not to be a problem that I happen to step out because you know, organization, that I'm not going to be here all the time. Yep. So how can we plan for that? How can you enable that? How do you allow me both to have a career and to be a human outside of work? That those shouldn't be as challenging problems as it seems like they are. Yeah, I think there was, so the Ponman Institute back in mm-hmm. 2020, they had a report that came out that said that 73% of companies are uh, really don't have an incident response plan. They, they'll probably go ad hoc. And those that did have incident response plan, I think it was like, I think it was more than half of them didn't even, they weren't updated at all. So if you think about it, like if we don't even have incident response plans, how are we going to sleep during the night? Cause like, just imagine like, you know, you, you wake up and you you find out, oh, we we're dealing with a breach. Cool. What's the steps? Who's responsible for what? No one knows. So, you know, that's going to take so much longer to mitigate that situation, but it's also like that keeps up, like keeps security folks up at night, knowing that there is no plan or it's going to go ad hoc if something happens. Because we all know a breach, it will happen. Everyone's going to have a breach. We just don't know when. And it's not no longer a conversation of like, oh, well, you're not good security folks if you have breaches. No, that's not the conversation. The conversation here is our breaches are going to happen. It's just, it's going to happen. And it's just us being prepared for it so that we can act and mitigate as fast as possible to reduce whatever may occur afterwards. Yeah, no, I completely agree. If there was somebody in the community here recently asking who uh, seemingly was relatively new to the security role at a relatively new company. And they were asking the question of, you know, what, what do I need to do? What, what kind of programmatic things do I need to be looking at on a regular cadence in my role to make sure that everything's secure? And a number of the mentors here on the Cyberry platform kind of jumped in and we're pointing them back to, well, what's your incident response plan as an organization? What are the policies around the organization? What's most important to the organization? All of these contextual things that really mattered. And I, you know, ultimately got this this particular community member kind of on the track. And But I think when they, they followed back up and came back around, there were some of those things that were just missing. Um, so you have this person who is in a role who clearly was reaching out to their community and their network to do a really amazing job for this organization. And the unfortunate reality, not not to vilify the organization in any way, shape, or form. It may be a lack of knowledge or awareness on their part that may be exactly why they brought this person in because they want to change that. But they didn't have all the supportive, you know, seemingly basic things, right? So how can this person know what they need to protect if you as an organization don't even know what's really important? Um, So it was just a really interesting example to your point about not even having an incident response plan of, you know, as cybersecurity professionals, I think there's a lot that we can do to turn the tide on it in any number of these things. And sometimes it involves having a voice and getting connected and standing up for what you need to stand up for. And 
you know, I think whether we want to say it or not, and it shouldn't maybe necessarily be this way, but taking a little bit of a risk for being part of the change that I think our industry needs to see. Um, I, I know you speak very often about some of these topics, about burnout, about diversity, uh, and DE&I. And um, you know, I, I wonder, again, kind of circling back, what are some pointers that you have or, or some ways in your experience that members of this community listening to the podcast today can be, um, you know, kind of a catalyst for some of that change to help the, the, the industry at large get more in alignment and more where we, we all know from the inside that it needs to go? How can we be a part of the solution? Honestly, it's a very simple solution, which I find really hard to believe that companies are struggling on the solution, which is ask your people, what do they need and deliver? Think about it. Have, have like, you know, a couple hour session or one hour session where we just dive into the incident response plan and talk about what's missing, what we need to update, who will be responsible in managing and keeping this incident response plan up to date. That's one. The other thing is having a conversation about what tools do you actually need? A lot of times we have so many tools, which is overwhelming, um, and we're not using them. So ask them, what, what do they need? What, what tools work? Which ones don't? That's great. Listen to them and then make actions. I mean, that at the end of the day, it's very simple. It's just asking people what they need, invest in them. And honestly, at the end of the day, giving them resources where they can you know, can keep growing in their career, that's how you're going to keep them staying on your team. So invest in your people, making sure they get the skills that they want to have and to make sure that they feel fulfilled in their job and be there for them. That is, that ultimately is just being a good human being. That's all it is at the end of the day. Just be a good person and, you know, listen to your people and take actions for your people. That is the that is the number one thing you can do, invest in them at the end. Yeah, and no, I think that's great, right? So have a clear idea of the objectives as an organization that you need to accomplish and then pour into your people that are helping you accomplish that. I, I know as a leader, I, I always try as frequently as possible to tell my team that I win when you win. Um, and if you're not winning, then I'm not winning. And it's my job as a leader to pour into you so that you can succeed and that you can get the credit. And then if that's great. I want the team to have all the credit. That's how we all win. And if if it's not going well, then that that's on me as the leader as well. And I, I it's shocking to me a little bit, unfortunately, Chloe, how few people tend to approach it that way. It's much right. more, uh, oh, you, you need to do what I said because I'm in charge and you're not. Yep. And that, I mean, if at the end of the day, if we could just do that, then um, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have a problem anymore in cybersecurity filling those seats. And I'm pretty sure we would have... No problem in finding, you know, making sure that their people feel welcomed and, you know, knowing that they appreciate them and and they they really do appreciate them at the end of the day. Absolutely. Chloe, it's really been a pleasure to have you on. Um, I, I was excited before, but I'm even more excited now to have you regularly on the show uh, to talk with us, to challenge us in, in the positive and an insightful way. Like I, I know that you will and you always have anytime you've been a guest on the show previously. So thank you again so much. I'm looking forward to many, many more really interesting conversations to come with you and the, and the broader uh, cyber team. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Pleasure. Cybrary the premier cybersecurity skill development platform is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit 
www.cybrary.it.